0: Welcome to the New Books Network Hello, welcome to the New Books in African Studies Podcast. I am your host Ari Barbalat. Today it is my honor to be in dialogue with Sarah Vaughn and Martin Plous regarding their newly published book, Understanding Ethiopia's Tigray War, published in London by Hearst Publishers 2013. Sarah is a freelance consultant, working on Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. She is a former research fellow at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh between 2001 and 2021. Martin retired in 2013 from his role as editor for BBC Africa. Presently, he is a senior research fellow at the University of London. Martin and Sarah, it's an honor and a blessing to have this opportunity with you today. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
0: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? What formative events in your lives inspired your professional and writing journeys and inspired your interest in the topic of this book?
2: Well, just to begin, uh, jump in. Um, I'm I'm a South African by origin, born, born Brought up in Cape Town, and uh, when I started travelling to uh, to Europe, I then came across. I remember on a, on just a, a railway trip, a, an Ethiopian man. We got talking to each other, and I suddenly realised that there was this. While I was quite well informed about Southern Africa, I realised the depth of my ignorance in uh, about the rest of the rest of Africa and uh, particularly the horn of africa which has this extraordinary depth of history and depth of culture and uh, many peoples all of whom are you know are very complex and difficult to understand but they they they, they have they share this rich heritage and um then afterwards i got involved with the uh, bbc and worked on on africa for the best part of 30 years Um, And got to know a lot of people from the Horn of Africa and always enjoyed working with them. And I subsequently to retirement, I've written a number of books about Southern Africa and about the the Horn of Africa. And um, I've always found it an an area which has uh, extraordinary detail and complexity and tie-ins with the rest of the world. I mean, it's one of the regions. I mean, unlike, unlike much of the rest of Africa, it's tied in with the Middle East. It's tied in with the the uh, the Western powers because of the being right on the uh, you know the, the Red Sea and the the route through to Europe, and uh, as a result, it it it's important to everybody, and for that reason, uh, you know, it, it is it's crucial to a lot of things that go on in the region and is absolutely fascinating.
0: Thank you.
1: I think Martin's already given you a really good idea of why Ethiopia and the Horn are so fascinating and why so many of us spend many decades working on it. I'm a Brit. I live on the borders between England and Scotland. And I come from a family which has Welsh, Irish, English roots. So I'm quite interested in identity issues. But I first got involved in Ethiopia in the late 1980s. Some of your older listeners might remember the Band-Aid Live Aid period, that famine period of the mid-1980s. So I first got involved with Ethiopia through Oxfam and the humanitarian operations, but very quickly got really interested in why it was that the Civil War at the time was driving some of this really very serious problems, food insecurity, famine, displacement, and violence, of course. And so I got very interested in Ethiopia's politics. And it's one of those countries that the more you know, the less you know. It's a very ancient country. It's a very complicated culture. And um, yeah, it's, it sucks you in. So I think I've, I've really been sucked in and have continued to work on the same region um, since the late 1980s.
0: What message does this book convey? What are the primary themes in this book?
1: Well, uh, that's a huge question, Martin. Go so ahead.
2: <laughs> I mean, the uh, I, I wrote a previous book uh, on, on a on the war that broke out between Ethiopia and Eritrea, tragic war along the border between uh, ninety eight two thousand, uh, which led to about a hundred thousand deaths, and. Uh, uh, I, I was very frustrated then because we wrote it some years later and there was a lot of the material that had been around at the time was then missing and you just couldn't find it any longer. So when uh, this war uh, broke out, uh, I, I, I just thought, you know, hang on, why don't we pitch something that um, will try to capture at least be a first snapshot of what this conflict is? Because the conflict is far more than just about Ethiopia and its internal. It's not a civil war. The, the war involved many Ethiopians, but it also involved the Eritreans who were involved right from the beginning, who attacked at the same time as the Ethiopians did, the Somalis who had about between five and 10,000 troops in Eritrea and also got involved, plus many different elements of the Ethiopian panoply. And so it seemed a good idea to try and grab it and sarah was an ideal partner because she had been working on this area and knew much more than i did about about uh, especially about tigray and about the ethiopian history so it worked worked well so that, you know it was it was this attempt to you know make sure that at least something is there for people then to have a pot shot at, to criticize, to embellish, to to say where we got things wrong, which is fine. I, I, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I think everything that we put down there, we tried to be as accurate and, you know, as possible and ref, re, provide the references and all the rest of it. But um, I'm sure there are, are errors. I'm sure there are areas that can be in, in, enhanced. Um, and I I look forward to others doing that and some already are, and that's, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. As Martin says, this was a kind of first draft, if you like. Um, And it's certainly the first book published in English on the, the war. It came out very, very soon after the cessation of hostilities agreement was signed. And even now, you know, one can say that the war isn't, entirely over we don't have a solid sustainable political settlement and there's still a lot of anxiety about ongoing human rights violations and the inability of displaced populations to return to areas that they were pushed out of um, in the war so it's not really over in that sense Um, but I think for me there was a one really really critical motivation why I was so keen to to be involved in this project which was let me be undiplomatic, the lying that was going on about this war. I think uh, the official version of the Ethiopian government, which has been swallowed by many in the international diplomatic community, was that this was a a very small and simple law and order operation just to bring back into line a small group of recalcitrant terrorists, um, you know, who were creating problems and that it would all be over in three weeks um, you know mission accomplished I think've we've, we've seen this very sort of optimistic uh, messaging uh, in a number of different conflicts but this was really a kind of extreme post truth or you know a sort of false facts Um instance of a narrative being spun by a government which was purely and simply lying about what they were doing to an element of their population um, and the, the extreme egregious human rights violations uh, which were taking place during the war under cover of darkness. This was a real hidden, untold war where the internet was switched off, there were no telecoms. I think it's hard for us in the West to imagine Um where you, you just can't find out what's going on about your your loved ones back in, in Tigray. There was just a complete blackout on all news and very, very largely in some ways there still is. So for me, the the need to get the sort of the real story out there and, a, you know, really something which was demonstrated how much more complicated this was, that it was not just about law and order or terrorists, that this was a very, very deep-seated political struggle and that the war had been deliberately engineered by some really venal politicians at the helm of Ethiopia and also neighbouring Eritrea um, who deliberately went about weakening if not trying to eradicate a particular population in, in Tigray um, in their own political interests, very deliberately and with great wickedness in my view. So this was what we wanted to do. I think that's the key message of the war is to say that this wasn't an accident, it was planned. It's the product of a, a very
0: profound political division. That's so interesting, thank you. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
2: A better understanding of the subject, and perhaps an interest in the issues that we've we've raised in the book. Um, and I hope a sense of uh, concern about the appalling um, suffering that was inflicted. Uh, I mean, on look, this was inflicted on many many actors. Uh, I mean, the the uh, the troops that died, the uh, individuals who were killed on on both sides, but particularly on the suffering of the women of Tigray. Uh, I mean, they, they were brutally attacked for a purpose. It didn't just happen. They were attacked because there were certainly elements uh, in in the in the military of of both the Ethiopian and the, and the Eritrean state. Who wished to try and eradicate the uh, them as 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 a people, and they they said so in so many words, you know, uh, sort of this womb will never produce a Tigrayan again, and they 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 brutally uh, raped women. I mean, sometimes for days on end, and I just think that cannot cannot be allowed to be swept under the carpet. Yeah, I
1: agree. I'd re- I'd really like. Um this conversation to encourage listeners obviously to to think about reading the book, um, but also to think about the Ethiopia story and the story of the Tigray war and of course the Tigray war is only one of a whole series of conflicts ongoing in Ethiopia, it was the the worst and the most egregious in terms of human rights violations. But there's still a very bloody conflict in Oromia and indeed now in Amhara, which is getting worse by the day. Um, We heard just a few days ago that, uh, you know, some significant towns and uh, airports were being overrun um, by anti-government forces. So, you know, there's a a real kind of ongoing problem in Ethiopia, This, this is not over yet. But I think for me, maybe for listeners in North America and in Europe, what's perhaps um, significant is to think about a conflict about which they may not have heard very much, but which actually in 2022 killed more combatants than the war in Ukraine did. Um, a report recently came out suggesting that around 600,000 people were killed only in 2022 in the Tigray conflict. Now. We see Ukraine, quite rightly, all over our screens on a daily basis. Um, But I think this is another conflict which it's important to remember is really having a dreadfully devastating effect in another part of the world, which... Arguably, like Syria, like Yemen, like uh, Afghanistan, perhaps is somehow just not covered in the same way by our media. And I think if if this conversation helps um, your listeners to to think more about that and to be interested to read some of these other stories, then that would be a great result.
0: Wow. In your perspective, what explains the silence surrounding the Tigray War and the tragedy in Ethiopia, vis-a-vis? The attention devoted to Ukraine, for example, what explains the amnesia and the ignoring of Ethiopia and Tigray?
2: Well, I, I think there are two two things to do, to remember about it. The first is what, what Sarah said, which is that the uh, that that the there was a very careful policy by the I mean the Eritrea almost never lets anybody into the country to report. There are no news agencies or independent journalists in Eritrea at all. And that policy was then extended to the warfront uh, in Ethiopia, although Ethiopia has some very good journalists uh, locally and has, um, you know, foreign correspondents base there. Nobody, but nobody was allowed to go up to the warfront. So if you can't go up to the warfront, how on earth do you, um, even as embedded troops, even embedded with the Ethiopian army, they, w- they didn't allow that to happen. Now, how do you report on a, I mean, I'm a former journalist, how do you report on a story when you're not allowed to go and see what's happening? So, you know, yes, you could hear stories from people who were caught up in it, but even that was exceptionally difficult because they, as Sarah said, they cut the uh, the telecoms, they cut the, uh, the Wi-Fi, they cut all supplies going in, and it was only with, A very, very small number of, you know, satellite um, systems were the Tigrayans able to get any news out, even to their own people um, in the rest of the world, upon whom they relied for, you know, support. Um, So, you you know, it was you, you were left with tiny fragments of information. So it's not surprising that people didn't hear about it. I mean, I did help a couple of journalists to get in. I uh, put them in contact with people and told them I don't want to know how you get in because I don't want to be the person who leaks it. And they did get in. They did their best, but it was only they were tiny drops in in the ocean. The other reason, of course, is that you know Ukraine is in the middle of Europe, and it, this is a potential uh, conflict uh, which could bring in uh, the whole of NATO. Uh, it could involve nuclear weapons. So of course, it has a, uh, a resonance for for people in the West that um, an, a, a conflict in, in in Africa, when there seem to be so many conflicts in Africa, it just doesn't have the same resonance. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't. It should.
1: Yes, I agree. I mean, it was partly because it was so difficult for media to get access. I think there's also a bit of complicity from, from the international community and geopolitics. I mean, Ethiopia is a problem for... Many of its partners, you know, it's really important to think about how the geopolitics of the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea and the Gulf states um, have shifted uh, over the period, for instance, since the 1980s, when I first got involved with the region, Um, you know, we're no longer in that kind of Cold War period where you had the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc, and it was very clear. And Africa was, you know, allied with one or the other. And, of course, during the 1980s, the Ethiopian government was allied very clearly with the Soviet Union. Um, And that meant that Western policy in supporting uh, humanitarian operations was was pretty straightforwardly channeled, not through the government, but through international non-governmental aid agencies, Oxfam's and CARES and World Visions and so on and so forth. Um, And the government was a problem. Now we're in a different situation where, you know, the the prime minister who came in in 2018, who I think is a a primary architect of this war, came in as a reformist, came in as a great hope with a lot of optimism and with a lot of support from the Trump administration in the US. So, you know, there was really a reluctance to criticise his actions and there was I think too much complicity amongst the international community and in going along with this idea of a law and order operation and that, you know, the other side were the problematic characters. I think that the Tigrayans who um, were in control of the, the northern region that was uh, was attacked by the Ethiopian government and its allies had been seen as Marxist-Leninists, that they were too close to China. This was a kind of narrative that certainly the Trump administration swallowed uh, with a bit too much enthusiasm and with uh, not enough caution, I think. So... But now you're in a situation at the end of the war where I think the West doesn't want to lose Ethiopia. You know, we're now in a multipolar world. You have Russia, you have China, you have the Gulf states, the Emiratis, Turkey, the Saudis and so on. So, you know, in a sense, back in the 1980s, I think if an Ethiopian government had done this sort of thing, it would have been roundly criticised and um and sanctioned and um, subjected to a lot of clear-cut moral opprobrium because of the complexity of the geopolitical situation now. And and Martin can say a lot more about this because he's written an excellent chapter on this issue um, at at the end of the book. Uh, I think you've now got an international community that's really reluctant to, to put too much pressure and to talk about... You know human rights concerns and shared values of the rule of law and and so on because they don't want to push this this government into the arms of Putin, China, um, and alternative proxies and alternative patrons who who might be able to. Uh, continue to influence um, and provide the support if Europe and uh, North American uh, Western states uh, withdrew it. I don't know, Martin, do you want to say a bit more about the geopolitical situation? But I think that's also influenced, geopolitics has influenced the way publics in the West um, are not being as informed about this, this war as they might have been where, you know, in the Ukraine place, Case we're all clearly on on one side of this, whereas the Ethiopian case is a bit more complicated. So I think in human rights terms it shouldn't be.
2: Yeah, I mean I I completely agree with that. I think that is that is correct. Um, I I mean one way of looking at, at this is to is to consider what's going on across the whole of of Africa, almost from Mali right through to Eritrea uh, and beyond. Um, and that is that there, there is now a real struggle um between three different groups on the one hand you have uh the jihadists who are trying to take control um of uh i mean not 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 uh, ethiopia uh i mean they're they're marginal there but across a whole swathe of the sahel they're really big players um various uh, uh islamist groups um You then have there was a response, a strong response with uh, the West coming in, trying to bolster various governments who were uh, fighting them. But the um, sometimes in a cack handed way, sometimes poorly. And then in the last few years, you have the Wagner group who comes in on behalf of uh, Putin, uh, almost as a freebie for Putin, because he they go in, they they send in a, a few thousand sometimes only a few hundred highly armed mercenaries and they 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 get out um gold which is or you know, other minerals which are then flown back to uh, to to the uh, to russia and this helps pay for for the ukraine war so it's it's a real win-win for 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 putin and the problem is that yes there was a focus on the 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 the, the, the war in Tigray. But then we get this conflict which blew up in in Sudan, which shows no sign of of ending and also involves almost the same actors and the same people. I mean, not the the, the air trains directly, but, you know, it it involves the 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 Arab states, the Egypt. Um, It involves, you know, Ethiopia could get drawn into it. Um, And you have the Wagner group involved. Then you get the, the coup in Niger. So one of the one thing spirals after the other and quite frankly um if you're sitting in uh, I don't know in London Paris or in uh in Washington you just think well which of these conflicts are we going to get involved with uh we you can't deal with everything and you know to be fair to um President Biden, he did expend a lot of political energy, time and action trying to persuade people to pull back, to end end the conflict in one way or the other. Um I mean not not always successfully. And you know, you get the the Nigerians coming in with uh, President Abasanjo former President abasanjo trying, to you get the Kenyans involved, and it did look pretty it's sort of they they found a compromise it wasn't a, it was a terribly messy one um and one that that had, leaves so many questions unanswered um i mean including for example where Tigray is uh, what Tig- what is the shape of this and that was one of the key questions in all of this because there's so many demands on uh, on the territory and uh you know who you which what should you stick by the, the constitution of ethiopia which says one thing or ancient um, claims which say another thing this is immensely difficult to, to sort out and none of this is, is 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 clear at this stage and you still have eritrean forces deep inside ethiopia and the. The, the, the deal that was done was supposed to ensure that there were no foreign forces inside Ethiopia. That's the responsibility of the Ethiopian army now. Are they fulfilling it?
0: No. What misconceptions about the situation in Tigray does your book challenge? Why do these misconceptions exist and persist? Now, I'll leave that to Sarah.
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. And um, gosh, I'm not sure how to answer it, actually. Um I mean, I think, you know, one of the the elements of the government narrative was that um, the Tigrayans and particularly the ruling Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, um, who was this organization that they designated as terrorists at the beginning of the war, that they were responsible for all the problems of Ethiopia. This narrative had kind of grown up, that, but for the Tigrayans, being so difficult about everything, insisting on a kind of ethnicized version of politics in the narrative of of their opponents. Um, You know, Ethiopia would have been fine, but all the problems of modern Ethiopia started when the, the Tigrayans were involved in central government from 1991. One needs to dig back a bit into the history. I mean, the TPLF were one of the so-called ethno-national forces fighting the central government through the 1980s. Before 1974, you have the imperial dynasties ending with Haile Selassie, who was deposed by the army in 74 in the so-called Creeping Coup. He was executed along with the 60 of his ministers. So then you, you get come to the end of this sort of feudal, aristocratic, traditional Ethiopia. Um, And then you have a period from 74 to 91, when Ethiopia is ruled by a military junta, uh, a Marxist-Leninist Soviet allied uh, committee of the army, which in some ways, retains some of the basic constellation of the imperial period, which is the sort of centralization of power in Addis Ababa, um, a great concentration of uh, power and wealth and authority in um, the groups around Addis Ababa, and particularly Shoa. So Amhara and the Romo dominant groups, um, who... And those who assimilated to that dominant political culture, which was characterised by speaking Amharic, uh, by Orthodox Christianity, by adopting this sort of hierarchical um, political culture, uh, and. Not all parts of Ethiopia shared this culture. Modern Ethiopia is is the result of a period of 19th century expansion. Some would say colonial expansion uh, in the same way that the neighboring states uh, were colonized by France, Britain, Italy. Uh, Ethiopia was subject to a process of expansion and conquest. But in this case, it was by the Ethiopian emperors. of the, the highlands, and particularly the Shoah Amhara dynasty uh, under Menelik II, which expanded Ethiopia to its, to its current borders. And that meant incorporating many groups, the Oromos, the Southerners, Gambela, Benishango gumos many Somali communities, Afar communities, which had not been part of traditional Ethiopia or Abyssinia, it was, as it was often referred to historically. Um, and this means that you've got the modern state is a kind of empire state, an imperial state. Um, and for some of those groups who were incorporated in the 19th century, this is unfinished decolonization. And they want, they were fighting through the 1970s and 80s for greater autonomy. So the Tigrayans, the Oromos, the Somalis, the Afaris, many of the groups that fought the Derg military government wanted, uh, either to secede entirely or to have a a greater stake in controlling the state and not to be sort of subject citizens. So the the arrangement that was introduced in 1991 was a federal arrangement uh, controversially and unusually along the lines of the major language groups or ethnic groups so that each federated state was, um, you know, Drawn along the lines of the major language groups. This has always been very controversial, and it's a project which, rightly or wrongly, has been associated with the Tigrayans, the TPLF. So, you know, they were dominant in the uh, government which ruled Ethiopia from 1991 to um, 2018. They did a lot of good things. There was a lot of very, very effective anti poverty, poverty reduction. Uh, huge, huge high growth rates, lots of really positive developments as as I uh, catalog and and, uh, enumerate in the book, but also this was not the most inclusive and um, uncontroversial, if you like, political constellation, and they accumulated a range of enemies. And when the new prime minister came in, this Rommel prime minister, uh, Abiy Ahmed, in 2018, he, in a spirit of generosity, amnesty, it all looked very positive, invited back some of the most radical, vehement, and indeed racist critics of the previous government, uh, who proceeded to kind of foment this incredibly strongly anti tigray anti-TPLF narrative. And in a sense, that suited the incoming Prime Minister very well, because he wanted to distance himself from, from the previous lot, even though he was the product of that same ruling party. And many of his peers in government had also been part of that ruling constellation. They needed a scapegoat in simple terms. And the TPLF and the Tigrayans became the scapegoat. So you had this real efflorescence of some extremely unpleasant hate speech. Um, and eventually the narrative that the TPLF were, um, were uh, really the, the sort of root of all of Ethiopia's problems. And that meant that when the war finally started, you had a very, very strong we must be honest about this, really very shocking and, and quite horrifying and very problematic in terms of Ethiopia's future health. We had a very strong public consensus in support of, of the war against Tigray. Um, and I think that makes consensus building and bridge building and healing and processes of transitional justice, truth, dialogue, inclusion, extremely problematic because that those sort of the viciousness of that period of, of mobilization is still very, very, very strong in Ethiopian political narratives today. I've gone in many different directions. I'm not sure if I answered your question.
0: Thank you. Can you describe the geography and demography of the Tigray region of Ethiopia?
1: Martin, do you want to have a go at
2: that? Well, I mean, it is a uh, it is part of the northern highlands of Ethiopia. It it borders on uh, Eritrea in the north, with whom it has uh, strong links because both of the high, all the Highland peoples, uh, not all but the majority are, are Christian Orthodox Christian. And um, they speak similar languages and uh, have the same kind of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Um, but I mean, the to the to the West, and this, in a sense, you see, you, you, it depends where you draw the line. Where do you think the the border is? Do you think that, that Tigray has a border with Sudan? Uh, because you then, from the highlands, you descend into the lowlands, uh, and that is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, historically, and there are plenty of maps to show this. Yes, indeed, they did have a border and that was their area. But the the, the the groups that were mostly involved in uh the conflict, particularly Amhara, said no, it's our area. It's traditionally our area. You, you shouldn't be here. And that is uh a a, a, a a big problem, um, because it is um one one of the issues that is uh um still dividing people today. Uh then to, to the uh to the uh, east you have the afar people who are uh the uh who are very different ethnically and uh, are, are muslims and then uh to the south you have um uh, various peoples including the aroma as as uh as sarah was was describing so it it, it is you know the, the complexity of of the the and everybody has a claim on everybody else in a sense and that is where the difficulty arises because if you are you going to go back hundred years, two hundred years, fifty years, three hundred years, depending on which where which well, your answer to that, you then find that, that that there's this you know it's a bit like they're trying to un- sort out um, you know Central Europe. You may remember there's the the old very old joke about the man who moved house uh, I don't know five times and was in different states and he never actually left his own village. And that was, you know, I think that was Poland, um, you know, but different different bits of, of it had been taken by different countries at different times. And that, in a sense, is exactly the same problem in the highlands of Ethiopia, that different people have had bits at different times. So where do you, how do you sort out that mess and how far do you go back? And that's why, I, I mean, I, I think that the the central question in Ethiopia is, do you allow people to express their their own ethnicity, their own um, you know, their own nationalism uh, and uh, take control of it? Or do you insist that everybody's an Ethiopian finished, end of? And that is the key question as to, because on that question turns the whole, your whole attitude towards the past. If you believe that you're just an Ethiopian, then you believe that there was no colonization; it was just a sorting out of things in the nineteenth century. If you believe that 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 everyone has the right to their own national identity, then you're going along saying, "Well, yes, that was colonialism, and we still have rights."
1: I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, Nari, that um, you know I have a, a mixed ethnic family from the UK—Welsh, Scottish, Irish, English—and I think you know. This is not something which is specifically Ethiopian. We find it all over Europe and even on the small islands in the UK that if you have a long enough and complicated enough history, you have lots of different framings for your identity. And I think that's also the the situation in Ethiopia. Um, You know, for some people, Ethiopia is a 3,000-year Quality. It's a story that goes back even to the the Queen of Sheba for for some people, and the Solomonic uh, origin of uh, myth of origin story. So you know, if you have that long a comp- and complicated a history. History becomes a sort of lucky dip, and according to your point of view, you can select whatever you want in order to demonstrate that black is white and white is black, and that's a problem because then you get a real lack of agreement between different groups and different populations about what's their shared history, what can they agree on. And I think Ethiopia hasn't yet been able to have the kind of national dialogue which some Ethiopians aspire to, which really enables people to discuss these things in a constructive and positive and um, inclusive way. This is very it does have a very hierarchical exclusionary uh, political culture. And I think that's one of the problems is that people politicians tend to want 110% of 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 their version of events and that means it's very difficult for people to share power and to coexist and to disagree without resorting to violence and there's a very interesting book which we recite in the, our book uh, written by a historian called Richard Reed at the University of Oxford, which traces the sort of genealogies of violence along this border between what is now modern Eritrea and uh, contemporary Ethiopia. It's showing how the, there have been patterns of violent exchange in this area really for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that's one of the, the legacies which needs to be confronted.
0: Can you comment on the history of Tigray in the 19th century? How was Tigray impacted by the policies of successive Ethiopian emperor? What were Menelik II's policies toward Tigray? What are the ramifications and repercussions that are still felt today?
1: That's a really good example of exactly what I was talking about, a contested history. Um, and depending on which side you stand, you'll believe a number of different things. I think for many Tigrayans, they see um, the advent of Menelik, who came after a Tigrayan, Emperor Johannes IV, um, as a disaster for Tigray. Um, On the one hand, Menelik and his Tigrayan general Alula defeated the Italians at the Battle of Adwa. um, And this was the huge... Kind of symbolic moment when Ethiopia became the kind of beacon for African emancipation, the only African state to defeat a European colonial power. That's part of the story. The follow-up to the Battle of Adwa is that Menelik didn't drive the Italians into the Red Sea, didn't reclaim Eritrea for Ethiopia, but agreed to the bifurcation, if you like, of the Tigrinya-speaking peoples. So Tigrinya speakers in what is now Eritrea and Tigrinya speakers in what is now Tigray in Ethiopia were divided um, between two international units, and the Italians stayed in Eritrea. And that's the beginnings of the separate story, if you like, of of Eritrea as an independent um, uh, country. So. You know, for many Tigrayans, they have a very negative perception of Menelik um, that, you know, he failed to keep this historical important area together, that he failed to keep the coastline, that he made Tigray into a poor periphery. From Menelik's point of view, he's from further north and further south in Shoa, you can see why he wasn't quite so keen on this very tough campaign to to get the the, uh, Italians out of Eritrea, when they were much richer picking south, you know, the the Tigray Eritrea highlands are pretty impoverished, poor, difficult to farm, whereas moving south and conquering those areas uh, of southern Ethiopia, Uh, offered an awful lot more in terms of resources, gold, slaves, Ethiopia was a very, very important slave trading uh, nation for all that it sets itself up as a kind of bastion of African um, emancipation, it's more complicated than that. so, you know, one can see from Menelik's point of view why he wanted to look south and, and east and west and rather than just focusing on the coast. But it's something that hasn't been forgiven uh, in the north. Meanwhile, for, you know, Amharas who identify with Shoah or with Menelik's legacy, they see him as the great unifier of the imperial um, state of of Ethiopia, so they're very very polarizing views um, uh, about Menelik in different parts of the country. The, as far as Tigray is concerned, also this the negative sense was reinforced because of the really devastating famine and the rinderpest epidemic, which um, came just after the Battle of Adwa. This really terrible. Um, uh, animal epidemic that um, undermined cultivation and saw a terrible deprivation. But this was really the beginning of a period under Menelik, then after his death during the the Regency, and then under Haile Selassie, where um, you had this... This period where many Tigrains felt that they were excluded from, from the center, having played a fairly important political role under Emperor Johannes, um, who was killed uh, fighting the, the Mahadists in Sudan on the on the west. Um, so, you know, they're, they're sort of the decline of their, their traditional uh, historical power started with Menelik. And are sort of only recovered their role at the centre of the Ethiopian state after after 1991. So I think that's a pretty grim period um, for many Tigrayan nationalists.
0: How did Italy treat Tigray during its occupation of Ethiopia between 1935 and 1941? In what ways is the present situation in the Horn of Africa a consequence of the legacy of Italian colonialism in the region? How can the history of Italy's present in this region shed light on present dynamics?
1: Again, that's a really complicated question for a specialist, and I'm I'm not sure I'm one. Um, but I think uh, there are some very, very important legacies of the Italian period, not only in Tigray, but all over the country. Um, I mean, Mussolini only occupied uh, Ethiopia for five years before um, he was ousted um, by the British and the returning um, supporters of of Haile uh with the defeat of Italy in the Second World War. Um, But that five-year period saw the most extraordinary uh, development of infrastructure all over Ethiopia, massive road construction campaign. Some of the most important arterial roads to this day were constructed in this this, uh, very short period. I think there was also another uh, legacy of the Italian period, which resonates, and that's something which is a bit of a taboo, I think, in Ethiopian politics and not talked about very often, which is that Italy um, set a precedent for dividing Ethiopia uh, on the basis of ethnicity or language groups. So Ethiopia was incorporated with Eritrea and Somaliland, uh, Somalia, uh, under Italian imperial East Africa. And so Tigray was united with, with Eritrea to the north um, and with the, the uh, capital centering um, in that area, uh, whereas, you know, Amhara was all under one area. Oromia was, was under one area. The Somali areas were all under one area. In, in a way, that's a sort of a, a kind of historical memory blueprint for uh, the ethnic federal arrangement, which was um, instituted in 1991. Of course, not many federalism enthusiasts wanted to talk about that because you know, referencing your new political project back to a period of colonial fascist occupation isn't something very popular or fashionable um, ever since. But I think there is something significant about that period of Italian occupation reminded some Ethiopian communities That there could be something other than just dominated by the Ethiopian Emperor State, Empire State, that there were other alternative ways of administering themselves. And I think particularly in the Somali areas in the East, it kind of reignited a sense of Somali nationalism and irredentism. Of course, you remember that the the famous Somali flag is the five-pointed star, which is for the the Reunification of the five Somali territories of Somalia, Somaliland, Ethiopian Somali region, S- Somali areas of Djibouti, and the northeast frontier uh, areas of uh, Kenya, which many Somali nationalists have often wanted to reunify into one great Somali. Uh, State. So the Italian period was very important in that it kind of reminded, it gave people a sense of this could be other. And in particular, I think the Italians were very smart at trying to mobilize religious grievances against the Christian Orthodox emperor. And in particular, in Muslim parts of the country, including the Somali era, I just talked about, um, they kind of galvanized a bit of a sense that um, people could have a different way of being administered so you know it took Haile Selassie a good 10 years after he was restored before he kind of actually restored all of the the pre-existing borders um, of Ethiopia Um, and for a long time there was a debate about whether as part of the Howd in the Somali region might be given to a neighboring country or indeed whether Uh, Eritrea should be divided up or reunited with Ethiopia and that of course is the beginning of the the complicated story of Eritrean nationalism and and independence which we also go into to some extent in the book and which of course Martin has written other books about um, including for Hearst.
2: I mean that is that is one of the the issues and of course the other thing is that one shouldn't forget that Eritrea was an Italian colony from the 1880s, and uh, was the base from which the Italians then attacked um, the uh, the Ethiopians or the Abyssinian, as uh, in the in the in that period, uh, and then uh, were defeated extraordinarily in the Battle of Adowa, one of the very few examples of an African state actually defeating a European power and pushing them out. Um, and uh, it was one that, that that really rankled with the Italians, and was one of the reasons I think why, the, uh, why Mussolini insisted on on you know proving that he was you know, rebuilding the the great uh, sort of Roman Empire view of of, of Italy. Uh, and one shouldn't forget that the that they also conscripted and and mobilized and uh, Eritrean. What were called troops, who were called Askaris, who they used on the front lines against the uh, against the uh, uh, the Ethiopian Empire during the Second World War, and uh, uh, that was they were then defeated uh, early on by by the by British troops supported by uh, um, Sudanese and Indians, and they they took back uh, and Eritrea then was left with Britain and Britain then didn't know what on earth to do with it and turned it over to the United Nations eventually after the war because they didn't want another colony. And um, the United Nations, after humming and hawing, eventually decided they should be united with with Ethiopia uh, in a federal system but have a lot of autonomy. Uh, And it was when that was ended in 61 by Haile Selassie that the war of independence by the Eritreans begins in, in earnest. And uh, so you can see the the complexity. I mean, the, you know, what, what was a simple question, um, perfectly legitimate question, you asked about Italy, uh, of course has long implications. And uh, you know, nobody forgets any of these things. Nobody nobody forgets what what happened. Uh, or, or, for example, that the, the that there were Eritrean troops who, who crossed the border into Tigray when with the with the Italians.
1: I think we say somewhere in the book that history is never over in ethiopia and one of the ways in which we we try to talk about history is not just as as a series of events but as narratives which get remobilized i think that's why some of this historical discussion is so salient to the contemporary problems and the war that we've seen in the last 2 years in tigray because It's continuously remobilized as a justification for Ethiopia should be a federal devolved, you know, association of of broadly autonomous units or no, no, Ethiopia should be centralized. And, you know, we should all, as Martin said, we should all be Ethiopians and forget about those those um, uh, other identities, the ethnic uh, side of things. So, you know. One can always mobilise history on one side or the other of this division, um, and it would be better if Ethiopians debated their histories, sitting in a room as we are discussing today, rather than than resorting to violence. But unfortunately, this this dreadful war has been one of the the ways in which um, competing forces have tried to demonstrate the superiority of their of their perspective.
0: Thank you. Can you compare and contrast Haile Selassie's treatment of the Tigray region and its populations with the Dirk-Manchistu regime's treatment of the Tigrayan region and the Tigray peoples? In what ways did Tigray and Tigrayans suffer under these two regimes? What were the similarities and differences between the plights of Tigray and Tigrayans under Haile Selassie and under the DERG-Mengistu regime?
1: I suppose one of the most important differences is that um, uh, for most of the Mengistu regime, the DERG regime, uh, there was a civil war being fought in in Tigray. So the sort of real serious armed resistance to the central government of the DERG uh, took off in earnest with the establishment of the TPLF in 1974 um so you know it was a much much more brutal period it was a brutal regime it had enormous military conscription um you know had the biggest army in black africa uh, it was allied with the Soviet Union, which certainly up until 89 was providing it with, with anything it wanted in terms of materiel, uh, supporting it very heavily, even with, with Cuban troops and so on. So it was a very, very brutal civil war that was waged through the 19, late 70s, but particularly in the 1980s. And you know, as a consequence of that, um, the Band-Aid, Live Aid famine when I first came across Ethiopia and got interested in it, you know, it's, it's very much is seen as a, a result of the failure of the rains and um, failure of production. It's also a function of a deliberate counterinsurgency strategy by the government, you know, that famine in Tigray and Wallow was because of the way that the Dirk government fought the war in those areas. There was a a phrase that was used very often and which we've seen again just in the last two years um, of uh, politicians saying, you know, in order to catch the fish, meaning the TPLF, we need to drain the sea, meaning the peasantry. So this this kind of collective punishment and particularly a punishment um, based on starvation was a feature of the 1980s. Um, however, there are—I mean, it wasn't nearly as as bad a situation in some ways under Haile Selassie. Though, one can also see some of the, the sort of earlier precursors of some of these problems, there was also terrible famine uh, in Wallow, more than in Tigray, so just slightly further south, in 73-4, and that was part of what brought the emperor down um, because of his neglect of the, the starvation of, of populations in those areas of the north. But there was also some resistance in Tigray, though on a much, much smaller scale. In the 1940s, you had the so called First Wayane, the first revolt, um, which was actually put down, which is more uh, localized and more against sort of um, depredations of the imperial government and taxation in particular. Um, But it provided a sort of prototype, which, as I discuss in one of the chapters of the book, the TPLF then kind of adopted as a a way of thinking about um, revolt and resistance in an indigenous way in Tigray. Um, So Wayane became the name that the TPLF gave itself. And it's a sort of shorthand uh, by which uh, Tigrayans, TPLF, are referred to derogatorily by their their enemies as a as a sort of insult but also it's the way they refer to themselves with pride as as resisting Um, so you know the i think the the problem of the um imperial period was was neglect and very very little attention to a northern periphery um, little in the way of education, schooling, which, which created a sort of sense of, of uh, frustration and resistance and neglect, but a much, much more serious uh, repression during the Derg period, partly in response to the resistance which had grown uh, with the establishment of the TPLF. Um, which itself evolved out of the, the sort of radical leftist student groups which brought down the, the imperial government and, and unfortunately uh, installed this dreadful military
0: regime. What did the Tigrayan people and Tigrayan region suffer during the Ogaden War and during the 1998-2000 to 2000 Ethiopia-Eritrean border war? What were the consequences of these two wars and conflicts for Tigray and for Tigrayans?
1: I think I maybe want to to focus on the Ethiopia eritrean war because that sure. was much more proximate, and I'll, I'll let sure. um, let Martin comment on that. And the Ogaden War. I think that that's not quite so closely connected with with tigray and and Tigrayans. it was it was fought between the Derg government at the center in addis ababa and the somali government uh, next door and it's connected with this this uh, issue of somali irredentism and the the attempt to reclaim somali areas from ethiopia but i think much more specific and relevant to tigray and to the events in our book is is the Ethiopia uh, eritrean War of
2: 98
1: to 2000. Uh, Martin, do you want to have a go at that?
2: Well, yeah, of course it was not just a, a, a war between uh, er- the Tigrayans and Eritrea. I mean, the Tigrayans were um, had were in power in, I mean, they were one, one of the uh, groups that were in power in, in Addis Ababa, in a coalition, probably the most powerful one, but uh, it wasn't just them; they weren't the only people in, in, involved. And um, of course, because it was a border war, it was it was in territory that was right on their their doorstep, and the war went backwards and forwards and was terribly. Uh, it was a, it was a very brutal war, and I mean, this is something that that I think is very difficult for most people to understand. Most African wars are, you know, a few hundred men with. Couple of jeeps and uh, you know machine guns and maybe a mortar and uh, you know Kalashnikov rifles. Wars in Ethiopia are very different. Uh, they are in in this area. They are you know the whole deal. So you're talking about um, supersonic aircraft. You're talking about heavy artillery. You're talking about tanks. Um, everything you can possibly imagine. I mean, it would it it would be it, it would be fairly comparable. Not absolutely, but fairly comparable to the war that's now going on in Ukraine. Very different from the fighting that, say, goes on uh, routinely, say, in, in in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has been at war now for I don't know thirty years, um, or in or in 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 Sudan, neighbouring Sudan. Very different, um, and uh, you know that means that the 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 stakes are so much higher. And one of the issues that was that turned the current war was the question of who was going to provide those weapons. And because the borders of Tigray were sealed, they couldn't get any more weapons and particularly couldn't get any more ammunition, which meant that the Eritreans and the Ethiopians had an enormous advantage. And they were supplied by the Turks, by the Chinese, by the the Iranians, uh, particularly with drones. And the thing that turned the current war probably were the turkish drones which were enormously effective the ethiopians poured money into purchasing them the uh, turkish um, military came and set up camps in uh, the air force bases in ethiopia and trained the ethiopians in how to use them they were very very effective they meant you could monitor um, the advances and the retreats of your opposition and hit them when you wanted to uh, so that meant that uh, although the Ethiopians, I mean, the, although the Tigrayans were able to fight very fiercely and very successfully in the mountains, as soon as they got out into the plains, they were completely exposed. And uh, it was one of the reasons why they were unable to break through, particularly in their attempts to get through in the East and why they didn't attempt to, to break through in the West. They did advance quite a long way towards, a very long way actually, Towards uh, Addis Ababa, and there was a moment when it looked as if they might take it, and the United Nations, the UN, uh, the Washington, the French, all pulled their their staff out. They thought it was that bad. Uh, in the end, they didn't, and they went back. And uh, probably because they were being outflanked by the Ethiopians, and because of the attacks from the air by the drones. So you know, there there's some things which were you know quite peculiar to this war. Um, but nobody should underestimate you know the, the level of um, uh, of aggression and the level of fighting that that goes on it is it is absolutely appalling and as i say comparable to uh, the the ukraine war
1: perhaps one thing just just to complement what what martin said i mean the, the... The Ethiopian War of 98 to 2000, I think, is, is a really relevant context for what's happened uh, more recently, the war that our book focuses on, in the sense that it, the period from 2000 to 2018 was a sort of period of stalemate. So you had this Cold War standoff with the border closed, where Ethiopia and Eritrea were never reconciled. Um, And I think in that period, the Eritrean regime developed a narrative whereby, you know, Ethiopia and particularly the Tigrayans, and they referred to it as a Tigrayan regime, a Wayani regime, were responsible for all the ills that befell Eritrea. And there's a phrase Um, which is developed by a historian who said, you know, whatever the question was for the Eritreans, the answer was Wayane. They blamed everything on the Tigrayans. And in consequence, they began gradually a process of trying to undermine the Ethiopian state. Um, And they hosted the various political enemies of the, the government up to 2018, And uh, whether they were armed groups like uh, so-called Gumbot Seven, the Panisiokan Nationalists, or the Aroma Liberation Front, and all of these groups, which had a very, very strong anti uh, tigray sentiment, not least inculcated by Eritrean propaganda. And I think that's been a really important uh, precursor to the war um, when the, the situation changed after Abi came to power. And of course, he... Made this rapprochement with, with Eritrea for which he was given a Nobel Peace Prize, and which, um, you know, for many people in hindsight at least, looks very much more like a kind of pact for war between Addis Ababa and Asmara than a real kind of peace process. So that 98 to 2000 war really kind of is part of the sort of precursor of the, the latest uh, round of fighting. And as and Martin one, mentioned, the Eritreans haven't left Ethiopian territory, even as we speak.
2: Absolutely. And and the one other thing to remember is that, that because that war left such bitterness, um, President Isaias of, of Eritrea was determined to have his vengeance in some way, because he lost that war. And uh, he has bitterly uh, resented that that fact. And um he as soon as Abbey came to power, he really began working with him, plotting with him. Uh, ensuring that there was a, uh, a a narrative that they could work together in a common goal, bring in some Somalis, and with localized forces they could crush and eliminate the Tigrayans forever. That was his. That was his bottom line. They were never. They were going to no longer be around, and they were going to be eliminated. Uh, I'm not saying that he actually wanted to kill each and every Tigrayan, although sometimes it looked like that. But that they would I would no longer be a force, and that was the was the overarching ambition. And you can we we plot that very carefully in the book. You uh, you know we we really meticulously went through that, and um, you know that is really what what was at stake as far as the e- Eritreans were concerned. And of course, it is in a, a matter of great uh, you know frustration for the Eritreans that they didn't manage to ever crush the Tigrayans. They, the uh, the Tigrayans were forced out of their regional capital, Bekele, uh, right at the start of the war, and for, I don't know, uh, six months or so, until I think June the following year, they were actually out of it, but they then managed to come back, rearm, regroup, and take their own capital, and that never fell throughout the rest of the war. And that is a huge issue of frustration for, for President Isaias. And the, and the Eritreans, because despite throwing everything that they had at it, they weren't able to finally eliminate their enemy.
0: Thank you. What kinds of atrocities have unfolded in the present Tigray war? Can you describe the most important mass killings that have taken place?
1: Let me just quickly summarize the way I see it and then hand over to Martin, who's written most of the sections of the book on this issue. I mean... It seems to me that there are six categories of human rights violations, which are really quite remarkable um, in this war. The first is is execution of civilians. And those are mostly men, including boys and elderly men, in really enormous numbers. Um, And uh, we have some colleagues at the University of Ghent who've done remarkable work to document uh, some of these um, incidents. The second category is a real systematic campaign of rape and sexual violence not just the occasional sad thing that happens in war when troops are out of control but a systematic determined campaign to rape as many Tigrayan women as possible in order to subvert the bloodline to close the Tigrayan womb sort of rape with intent to exterminate Um, Then there is this issue of ethnic cleansing of Tigray populations from uh, Western Tigray and Southern Tigray in particular, which are areas claimed by neighboring Amhara groups, which means that there are still vast numbers of IDPs, internally displaced people in desperate need of uh, support in many parts of Tigray that issue is still not resolved. We've talked about the political drivers for the war, but there are also some economic drivers because this is quite fertile land that we're talking about that produces sesame and other cash crops. So it's of interest to a number of different groups. And that was also an economic driver of the war. The fourth category of human rights abuses is indiscriminate aerial bombardment, using drones, but also using artillery against civilian targets and towns, and also the Air Force. I think then there's a, a wider picture of profiling and arbitrary detentions of people just because they happen to be of Tigrayan descent and were therefore regarded as potential fifth columnists in other parts of Ethiopia, Notably, of course, about somewhere between seventeen and 20,000 Tigrayan origin members of the military who were detained, but also many, many civilians who were simply um, taken away in the night, um, and some of whom have still not uh, returned. But then perhaps most dramatically of all, and, and strikingly of all, from a historical point of view, is this kind of strategy of enforced starvation of removal or destruction of the means of survival um you know this this first phase of the war when Eritrean forces with Ethiopian forces and some regional militias really looted everything which could be used to to feed civilian populations from animals and crops, but also jerry cans for water and cooking pots and the means for cooking, oil, everything. So that then in the second phase of the war, when the Tigrayans returned to their capital, they were surrounded uh, and the Ethiopian government refused to allow food Supplies to go through to this very, very vulnerable economic uh, area, which is is not self-sustaining in terms of, of crop production, uh, knowing that this was, was really going to have a devastating effect. So this sort of de facto blockade, as the UN called it, um, was allowed to unfold. So those, for me, are the six categories of human rights violations. But let me hand over to Martin to talk more about what this meant.
2: I mean, I think you've done a very good job. I mean, the the only thing I would say is, is you know, you take a a, a, a city like Axum, which was um, on in the north of of Tigray and is is regarded by many people as a as a sacred city because the uh, the Ark of the Covenant is believed by Orthodox Christians to be in the uh, Cathedral of, of Mary. Um, and people come from um, across the the whole of Ethiopia to worship there. And the there was an absolutely appalling incident when the, the the town fell to the to the, e- the Ethiopians and Eritrean forces. There was some uh, attempt by um, a, a small group of, of Tigrans to, to take it back, and the the Eritreans in particular then went literally door to door, and they every single man that they found. I think even boys were just shot out of hand. The bodies piled up in the streets. Every single woman that they came across was raped. I mean, it wasn't just a few. It wasn't just, it was literally systematic from one end of the town to the other. And I mean, it took a long time for this news to come out. At first, it was just tragic rumors. Then it became confirmed. And there are now pictures, there's evidence. There is absolute evidence for, for all of this and names. We know what happened. You know, and one of the great sadnesses of the, the the current situation is that this was all before a um, committee of the United Nations, which was established precisely to investigate what was happening, and they were denied access to to Ethiopia by the by the government. They were they were, they were denied access to uh, to Tigray. They were told they could not come in, they could not go there, they could not investigate. The evidence was um, was destroyed. Uh, we have, we know. I mean, and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have documented this: that uh, you know, graves were you know removed, and and bodies were removed, and, and the evidence was 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 de- dis- demolished as much as possible. And I'm afraid to say that the, I think that that the whole um, uh, possibility of this being properly investigated is now practically over, and the last um lever that the west had to um bring this about which was uh the imf and world bank because loan the the ethiopians blew so much of their their funds on buying weapons uh to, to fight the war they were they're desperate for foreign exchange and for uh further loans to you know build the economy um and uh I, that could have been denied them through the uh um, you know through the IMF and World Bank, but I'm afraid it looks as if that is uh, that will not take place. Uh, you know, I, there, there was a meeting, I think, in the last uh, a week or so um, in in Addis Ababa, and I think that 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 has been dropped. That and I I don't think we will ever have a proper uh, a proper hearing of the atrocities that were committed. I don't think we'll ever have it properly. Um, you know, noted, and uh, so that that people would be held and brought to justice.
1: Perhaps if I can just add on that point. I mean, it does seem to me that the international community needs to learn from the mistakes that it's made, and I think particularly when we see this double tragedy unfolding in the Horn. We had this terrible period of bloodletting in Ethiopia and particularly in Tigray. And now we have this catastrophic disintegration of the very socioeconomic fabric in Sudan. Now, you know, the lesson it seems to me from Sudan is that if you superimpose a peace deal, so-called, which doesn't deal with the underlying causes of conflict and doesn't allow a sustainable political settlement to emerge and to, to, to build. But if you just paper over the cracks and paper over the resentments and the violence and hope for the best, eventually, and it may take 20, 30 years, that violence will re-erupt and it'll be worse than the last time round, And I think that's what we're seeing exactly in Darfur. You know, the the CPA in Sudan didn't take account of Abiyer, didn't take account of Darfur, and lo, it's all erupted again. I think the same lesson needs to be heeded in the Ethiopian context. Uh, You have a cessation of hostilities agreement, which is precisely that. It's not a peace deal. It's not a sustainable political settlement. There are many, many actors who still want to finish the job like the Eritreans, as, as Martin just described. So, you know, we have a really very fragile situation. And I think the sort of attitude of the international community just to sort of walk away and forget about what's happened, draw a line under that and go back to business as usual with Addis Ababa, That is going to serve Ethiopia and its populations very ill in the decades to come. And that's one of the reasons we hope as many policymakers as possible will read this book and ponder on their contribution in cementing violence into the the DNA of this part of the world, if you like.
0: Where have refugees impacted by the present conflict fled to? What has become of internally displaced persons in the present conflict?
2: Well, uh, I mean, they did originally uh, cross into uh, Sudan, but uh, the uh, Eritreans and the Ethiopians then b- blocked the exit. Uh, they put uh, troops along it, and uh, they sh- they fired on anybody who tried to, to leave. Uh, that forced people to then uh, go in other directions. Um, some went um, Eastwards to towards the Afar region, but not many. Uh, some uh, tried to escape by going southwards. Uh, some went to um, into um, even even fled to Addis because they, they they were just looking for for any sanctuary that they could. And there were, uh, let's not forget, there were about a hundred thousand Eritrean refugees who would crossed into into Tigray and who were being accommodated in the United Nations. Camps and many of those were forced to flee by the by, by the fighting and uh, you know we don't know what happened to many of the people, but most people were literally trapped in this bubble. Uh, they were they were walled hemmed in. So you know it's not as if everybody was able to 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 flee. Some people did get out, but the majority just stayed, lived with the fighting as best they could, fought back, and died.
1: Yeah, well, I think I mean there's. There's some really important refugee populations in this area. Ethiopia, at the beginning of the war, was one of the most important hosts of refugees in the region, even globally. Um, So large numbers of Eritrean refugees who had been in camps in Tigray at the beginning of the war. Some of those, we believe, have been forcibly uh, taken back across the border into Eritrea by Eritrean forces. Um, you know some of those refugee camps were destroyed Um, there are all sorts of reports about what may have happened uh, to them as Martin said there were also the 70,000 Tigrayans who in the first days of the war fled across the border into Sudan which said very quickly that it was expecting at least 200,000 but of course the military sealed the border and prevented any more from from moving but we now have this terrible, terrible crisis, and this is ongoing. We don't write about this in the book because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's escalated later, if you like, um, of I think it's one point eight million internally displaced people in Tigray itself, um, and I mean one of the, the excruciating ironies. Um, I mentioned this. Um, sort of hideous crime of enforced starvation, which uh, was perpetrated on on Tigran's during the war, during the siege, the sort of, I, I mean, we're having a sort of second replay of that history in a sense now. But with the involvement of, of the very humanitarian agencies who should be feeding these very, very desperately vulnerable displaced populations. Since March, of this year, both uh, USAID and the World Food Programme, which are the two big suppliers of relief food into Ethiopia, have cut supplies to the whole country because of a very massive uh, scandal of food diversion. Um, And one can understand that as uh, humanitarian professionals, they don't want to send good, bad money, bad food after good, if you like. They don't want to see this diversion allowed to continue. But on the other hand, they are doubly punishing this desperately impoverished, starving population, um, particularly in Tigray, but also beginning to hit in other parts of Ethiopia, where 20 million people are in need this year of emergency food relief. And since March no food has been going into Ethiopia. Of course, its government says that it has a surplus of wheat and that it's been exporting wheat. The suspicion is that maybe some of that wheat was not produced in Ethiopia but was coming from the, the food aid uh, programme. But until, you know, there is a standoff, basically, between the, the American uh, authorities and the World Food Programme on the one hand and the Ethiopian government on the other hand. The so, Humanitarian donors want to see a change in the food uh, administration system, which means that the government has its hands out of this process and that you would have a, a different monitoring and verification system, which was independent of government. Government says, no, that's a breach of our sovereignty. You can't do that. And here they sit and there's no agreement. And, and in the meantime, women and children and displaced populations, particularly, but not only in Tigray, are starving to death as we are speaking. And this is an utterly untenable situation, which must be resolved. And, you know, at the end of the day, formal first responsibility for the welfare of its citizens must rest with the Ethiopian federal government this must be something that they must deal with. They must break this logjam because many, many people will suffer if this situation continues.
0: Can you compare and contrast the policies of President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden toward the tragedy?
2: Well, President Biden at least knew where Africa was. That's already a you know a step in the right direction, um, and cared. I mean, he sent. Um, you know, senior colleagues repeatedly to try and sort this out. I mean, President Trump didn't, frankly, gave, didn't give a damn about 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 Africa. I mean, he was in, what does he care about except his own ego? Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that while President Biden, you, you can criticize him in 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 detail, in generality, he did everything that one could possibly have hoped for, in my view. From, a, from an American president uh, who only has a certain amount of time that he can possibly spend on one conflict in one part of the world.
1: Thank you. It's important to bear in mind that the Ethiopian war in Tigray erupted on election night in the US. So when the world was distracted uh, to see whether Trump would be re-elected. And then, of course, you remember we had that terribly controversial period when the world was distracted by... What would happen in DC and and would Trump prevail or was the Biden victory going to to be assured? So you had this period um, from the 3rd of November up until was it the 20th of January uh, the following year, when there wasn't really a very coherent policy from the American side. Um, and they certainly weren't going to be trying to to push back for the contending forces to withdraw or put pressure on. That did change when the Biden administration came in. There was a much, much more assertive policy, but it didn't cut much ice. Um, by that time, the damage was done. And, um, you know, it's been very, very different, difficult, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, Western powers to get much purchase on Ethiopia, which has been very smart in its public relations in trying to suggest that, you know, any pressure which uh, was placed on it because of its violation of human rights or its mistreatment of its citizens was somehow a sort of post-colonial breach of sovereignty. So there's been this narrative of Ethiopia as you know, in solidarity with other African countries as a great pan-African project um, defending its sovereignty against the West. When in fact it was engaging in a war which did an awful lot to undermine its own sovereignty and which brought the influence of neighbouring powers like Eritrea onto Ethiopian soil, but also made Ethiopia much much more dependent in financial terms and in military terms on other great powers. Um, and we've seen the dreadful economic impact of this war as a result of the decisions taken.
2: Just before we wrap up, I mean, can I can I just say two things? one is um, that the uh, is to remember that the the african union actually got a deal within uh, about 10 days of the war breaking out on the 4th of november 2020 and they were going to have mediation with african presidents there and it was all agreed between the president of south africa and the president of ethiopia but I'm afraid the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Prime Minister Abiy, refused to allow it to go along. So, you know, in a sense, we have this failure, which was based on something that could have really been a breakthrough. And the the last thing I would just like to say, if I may, is what the um, what Prime Minister Abiy said on the 9th of November. This is a tweet that he put out, and it, it just shows how far wrong he was about things. He said... Concerns that Ethiopia will descend into chaos are unfounded and a result of not understanding our context deeply. Our rule of law enforcement operation, rule of law enforcement operation, uh, that rings a bell, doesn't it? As a sovereign state with the capacity to manage its own internal affairs will wrap up soon by ending the prevailing impunity. That was what he said five days after the war began still not been resolved. Ethiopia is still in deep trouble because of this the conflict that he he threw his his people into and there is no it's by no means uh, over and that is the great tragedy of the situation. It is in a worse situation now than it was when it began.
0: Speaking of which, what does your book teach us about impunity and what does the present tragedy teach us about impunity? Can you go further in regard to the ramifications and repercussions of impunity for civilians in Ethiopia?
1: I mean, that's a huge question and it's probably a question for lawyers. Um, And let me be frank for Ethiopians. I mean, let me just, in conclusion, perhaps reflect on the fact that we have written this book as two non-Ethiopians, not from the Horn of Africa. We've devoted a large part of our lives, both of us, to this region. Uh, But we are outsiders at the end of the day. But I think I want to say something about our sort of sense of shared humanity and our sense of obligation to tell the stories of the many, many people who whose help and support and assistance we've benefited from greatly in writing this book. I mean, it's easy for us as, as two authors um, speaking to you comfortably from our living rooms. But I really do want to conclude by acknowledging the real commitment and bravery shown by many journalists, researchers, translators, people who've reached out to us and told their stories. Several of them are included in the book. We also have a co-author who uh, is Ethiopian, uh, writing under a pseudonym in the book. So, you know, this perhaps just to conclude by saying that the question of impunity is probably one for Ethiopians to deal with and I think they'll have many decades to be dealing with this issue and it's right that they should be uh, dealing with it Um, but they have many friends across the world and many um, people of whom we are only two who would do a lot to support and to see the the interests of Ethiopia flourish and we you know this has been a wonderful country with which to be involved over thirty five years in my case. It's a beautiful country. It's an extraordinarily diverse country. It's an extraordinarily charismatic and fascinating country. And I think in conclusion I'd just like to say I would like nothing more than to see Ethiopians flourish and perhaps in the words of the late Prime Minister Mala see all Ethiopians eating three meals a day, achieving their full human potential. I think if our book can encourage people to think more carefully about the devastating consequence of resorting to violence to resolve what are fundamentally political differences, then we should be very proud and very happy with what we've contributed to in this much wider collective project which goes way beyond either martin or myself thanks very much
0: my pleasure thank you as we end today i'm signing off by reminding you that i'm ari Barbalat, your host today on the new books and african studies podcast today i've been in dialogue with martin plout and sarah Vaughan. martin was bbc direct, editor for africa and he retired in 2013 Since then, he has been a senior research fellow at the University of London. Sarah is a freelance consultant who has worked on Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. She has been a research fellow at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh between 2001 and 2021. Today, we've been discussing their newly published book, Understanding Ethiopia's Tigray War published in London by Hearst Publishers 2023. Thank you very much.
1: Thank Thank you. you.